Hello, I'm Joe Pavia, and thanks for listening to my podcast, Station to Station. The podcast revisits radio interviews I conducted and news stories I covered early in my career. You can find blogs and photos on my website, joepavia.com. This episode focuses on a feature I produced with the Kitchener Public Library that I called Women in War. Test, 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 check, one, two, check, check. Coming down in three, two, one. The Gray Schmidt Room at the Kitchener Public Library, located in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada, is what I call a great time machine that you can step into to find out more about the past of the city and the surrounding area. The room is filled with photos, books, stories, and audio interviews from heritage members of the community. It was the audio stories of five women from Kitchener who were part of the war effort in the First and Second World War that caught my ear. In this feature, you will hear the voices of Margaret Schreider, Dr. Deborah Glaster-Hannay, Catherine Wilkes-Thompson, Anne Schreiber, and Darlene McLennan. The complete interviews of all five women, a total of 21 hours, is posted to the Kitchener Public Library website at kpl.org. Here's a sample. Margaret Schreider served as a nurse in the First World War for the American troops and didn't make it overseas until 1918. When war broke out, she says she applied for service but was denied as Canadian-trained nurses were given priority. Eventually, she would travel by steamship and serve at an army base camp in the south of France. One day I made up 50 cots, you know, the height of the cot. I thought I'd never stand up straight again because we had troops coming in and a lot of them were burn cases. They had sent over this sulfur gas mm-hmm. and wherever they sat, whatever position, you never saw such burns. It was just tragic, really. In a 1983 interview, Margaret Schreider said the one memory she could not eliminate was the image of the first soldier she saw die. She complained and complained of so much pain, so much pain. The doctors couldn't find the location or what was causing it. None of us, we were, everybody was doing their best to try and help this poor lad. And he died. We found out afterwards that it was poison gas that had affected him. The pain continued the day the armistice was signed. Schreider called it a pathetic day, a day for tears in the village close to where she was based. It was all the grandmothers and grandfathers, the young wives, the young children. They paraded the streets. But how many of their men were coming back, nobody knew. It was a day for tears. Despite the armistice, there was still work to do with recovering soldiers after the war wrapped up. She said the hard part for the nurses was taking care of their mental state, especially those who suffered physical injuries. One young man who was a pianist, this was his livelihood, and his right hand had been so badly destroyed. What will I do? Well, of course, this is where you have to use your faith Mm -hmm. and feel that this will work out. You were willing to make the sacrifice. This is part of it. You will adjust to it. There will be help you get back home. And I've often wondered, because you lose track of these people, Mm -hmm. but they still come to mind. Mm -hmm. Wish me luck as you wave me goodbye. Dr. Deborah Glaster-Hannay was pleased to finally be heading over after joining the Canadian Women's Army Corps in 1942. 
She had been ready to go since the war started, but says there were restrictions on women. But the Canadian war effort changed, and she claims the military finally accepted women who had enlisted out of desperation. Raping the bottom of the barrel. Oh, and women were the bottom of the barrel? Yes. Dr. Debbie, as she was affectionately known, was the first female doctor to practice in Wellesley Township. She would eventually become a captain with the Canadian Women's Army Corps and landing in the south of England in May of 1944. That's when she first heard about D-Day. They sent us word very shortly after we got there to try to, to get rid of as many of our patients, to evacuate as many of our patients farther north in England or back to Canada if we could get a way to do it. Uh, to make room for D-Day casualties. She explains everyone knew D-Day was coming, but not exactly when. And then she heard the bombers. Just a few days uh, before D-Day, the heavy bombers were going over so hard. And then the war started up and I decided I'm, I'm not going to sit behind a desk. So I joined the Red Cross. This is the Army, Mr. Jones. Catherine Wilkes Thompson took a motor mechanics course to achieve her goal of driving an ambulance. In order to be driving an ambulance or an officer in his car, you had to know how to repair that car that broke down. Mm -hmm. You also had to know where you were because all road signs, for instance, had been removed. Despite that training, her time in the war would be spent leading 16 other women in the Red Cross Food Corps. Working in the canteen didn't bother her though, as she would be stationed in England with her husband of three years. The two would be in the southern part of the country in early June 1944. The area would be cordoned off to only military personnel in uniform. On the morning of the 4th D-Day, I look out the window of the hotel look at all these military things and all the assault vessels, mm -hmm. trucks, you know, mm -hmm. uh, were coming down full of men. While she wasn't privy to any information about what was to happen and would be recounted in the history books as a turning point for the Allies, she would never forget what she witnessed. I heard this noise and I'll never forget seeing wave upon wave upon wave of aircraft. The sky was black with them. American, English, mm -hmm. French, Polish aircraft, all flying in mm -hmm. formation. I still get the shivers thinking about it. I really enjoyed it, like, you know, this adventure. She initially joined the Navy because she says she liked the uniform. In the end, she would serve as a Canadian Wren in the Motor Corps, driving an ambulance, and eventually make it to Greenock, Scotland before landing in London, England. Anne Schreiber of Cambridge was one of over 7,000 Canadian women who served in the Second World War. Basic training would begin for the 22-year-old in what was then known as GALT. They gave us a medical, and then we went to quarters to get our uniforms and things like that. When training ended, many of the women were sent off to be stationed in Western Canada, Toronto, or Halifax. She would spend a year completing her motor transport course in Galt before landing in Cornwallis, Nova Scotia, where she drove ambulance. It wasn't her choice, though. Because I was the last one there and no one else wanted it. <laughs> oh. Like, there were other wrens that were already down there, and um, 
like there was a pool and uh, you drove a little bit of everything but no one wanted to stay in sick bay. The topic of death, she says, was something the Air Force officers openly talked about. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen, but you didn't, you didn't think anything of it. You just thought, well, you were yeah. going to be one of the lucky ones, yeah. I guess. But we knew that down in, in Cornwallis, before I went there, I think the first or second day after I left, they had to go out. And I can remember them coming back and they were talking. They says, well, I wonder how long it's going to be. Is it going to be tonight or tomorrow? Let's remember Pearl Harbor as we go to meet the Pope. Darlene McLennan thought serving in the war would be an exciting challenge. A trained nurse applied for service in the American forces after the attack on Pearl Harbor and was eventually chosen to serve with the Royal Canadian Navy as what she called a nursing sister or a sub-lieutenant. McLennan recalls she witnessed the bravado of the sailors and many who experienced their last breath. One was particularly hard because it was someone I knew as a child. Uh. Um, he had led a hard life. McLennan says at the time the patients would be moved to what was called a silent ward. That's where they moved someone who was close to death. Just as he died, he had the most beautiful smile on his face. I don't think I've ever forgotten that. And dealing with the man she once knew wasn't over, nurses at the time would need to prepare the body until it was taken for burial. And I can remember um, her holding him and me doing that, and the tears were running down um, my cheeks. And, and she said, you know, what's with you? And I said, well, I knew this. I used to go for milk at his place. Oh, I see. When I was a little girl. I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places. I'm Joe Pavia. That this heart of mine embraces all day through. In that small cafe. The chestnut trees, the wishing well. I'll be seeing you. Thanks for listening to Station to Station. If you like the podcast, hit like on iTunes or drop me a line on my website at joepavia.com. Check out other podcasts, blogs, and photos that are posted to the site at joepavia.com, and you can hear other podcasts on iTunes or SoundCloud. Subscriptions to my podcast are free. If you follow this site, you'll receive instant notification via email of a new post. All you have to do is go to the bottom of the homepage and enter your email address. You can even sign up a friend. That's all. Thanks, and see you on the next podcast.